We're in Philippians chapter 3. You thought we would never make it. We have. I tell you, chapters 1 and 2 have been rich, but it just gets better. And chapter 3 is kind of a, a hinge moment, a turning point in the chapter in the book of Philippians because Paul's going to talk about sometimes you receive a message and it changes the way you live. Sometimes you'll get a message and it'll change the way that you live. And Paul got such a message in chapter 3 that it changed the way he lived. Lest I remind you, chapter 1 is about Christ is my life. Chapter 2, Christ is my attitude. Chapter 3, Christ is my goal. You're going to see why his goal was Christ because that's where his focus was. I remember back in middle school, I think this happened over at Thompson, but the girls could, they, one of the things I realized is uh, the water fountain and the bathrooms were kind of close, the boys and the girls' bathroom, and so the girls never could go to the bathroom alone. For whatever reason, I couldn't ever figure that out. Guys, we had no problem with that. But the girls, they would just kind of go together, go together, and they would go over there. And I don't know if y'all have meetings, if you hold hands. I don't know if y'all have issues that you, I just don't know. But one of the things that happens is uh, the girls started wearing lipstick about seventh grade. And they started kind of clicking their lips a little bit and putting the lipstick on. And so that what would happen is the, uh, I was told this, that the girls, <laughs> the girls would go into the bathroom and then they would kiss the mirror. They would take the lipstick on their lips, and they would leave a mark or an imprint on the mirror. And so the custodian had to continually wipe off the lipstick on the mirror. And finally, the principal knew that all of his speeches that he gave that wasn't going to help, so he says, I'm going to demonstrate to you what the custodian has to do in order to get the lipstick off of the mirror. So the custodian came in, and he dipped his uh, brush into the toilet, and then he took the brush and he began to wipe the smudges off the uh, mirror. And do you know that there was never another lipstick problem at Thompson Intermediate? I'm telling you. Because sometimes you get a message that changes the way that you live. Chapter 3 of Philippians is just that. There's a message that changes the way Paul lives. Notice what the text says. We're in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe, or it is a safeguard. Let me explain what Paul's saying. He's talking about rejoicing. The word rejoice here, and he uses it multiple times in this book of Philippians, and it's really not a book of joy. I know that there are a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me that say, the book of Philippians, the theme of the book of Philippians is joy. I disagree. Here's why I disagree. It's not the word that's used 35 times in the book of Philippians. Let me tell you the word that is used 35 times in the book of Philippians, and this is how you find the theme verse and the theme word. It's Christ. That's the, that's the word that appears over 35 times. Jesus Christ or Lord. So when you look at joy, joy is based on Christ being the theme of the book. Paul says to rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is 
the theme of Philippians. Christ is the theme of Philippians. That's why Christ is my life in chapter 1. Christ is my attitude in chapter 2. Christ is my goal in chapter 3. So when Paul tells us to finally rejoice in the Lord, he's talking about the theme. He's talking about Christ is the theme of the book. And rejoicing flows out of the reservoir and the well of Christ being your life, your attitude, and your goal. So the word rejoice here means to live in a state of gladness. That's what the word means. It means to live in a state of gladness. It's not manic, obnoxious, loud uh, celebration all the time. Like those of you that watched the Baylor game yesterday against Kansas, you were watching the game and there was a lot of, it was loud, it was boisterous, there was a lot of joy from the Baylor fans until the end. Because they couldn't live in a state of gladness because the state of gladness depends on whether you win or whether you lose. Paul is saying the word rejoice here. It's in the present imperative active voice. And the reason I say that, Paul says continually rejoice. You continue to live in the state of mind of rejoicing. It's an imperative. It's a command. It doesn't depend on who wins or loses the game. And it's active voice. Active voice means I make a choice to rejoice. That's what Paul's saying here. So this morning, you and I make a choice to rejoice. And the source of what we are rejoicing in is in the Lord. So we live in a state of gladness. It's not intermittent joy. If you did not have good happenings this week, you're not very happy because your happiness depends on what happened to you. So you may not be, I didn't have good happenings, so I'm not feeling very good today. But that is not joy. Joy is a state of gladness. It's a state of being. And we are to continually rejoice in the Lord. Like last week in the 930 service, I thought the fire alarm went off, but it was an amber alert. And since nobody turns their phones off in the 930 service, it all came in unison to me. And I was just waiting for security to tell me it's time to shut this baby down. But what happened was when when you and I, when we begin to live in a state of joy, Not this manic, loud, obnoxious uh, celebration because sometimes joy can be a deep-seated peace that you have in the midst of a storm where you're trusting God. It can be loud. It can be not so loud. But the reality is joy never leaves you. Happiness depends on your happenings, but joy does not depend on your happenings. Joy depends on what happened to you. And the reason Paul can say rejoice in the Lord is what happened to Paul and what happened to Epaphroditus and what happened to Timothy is Christ came to live in them. And he produces joy. So you can't ever beg out and say, you know what? I'm just not very joyful today. Yes, you are. You just don't know it. You're living in a, you're positionally, you're in joy. Practically, you're not fleshing it out. That's what Paul's saying here. So the idea would be to live in a state of gladness. So that's what Paul is saying here. And he's saying it's a state of gladness. And not only that, he's saying that there is security in the joy that you have. Notice what he says here in verse 1. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious. Here's what he means by that. I don't mind repeating myself to you again. He's already told us this. He said, let's back this train up one more time. It is not wearisome. It is not burdensome for me to back this train up one more time. It doesn't bother me one bit because the way that we learn things is repetition. So Paul says, I want to teach you about joy, so I'm going to remind you of something as we back this train up that I've already taught you. The way that you and I learn Scripture, the way that you and I learn disciplines is to do them over and over again. So he's repeating himself. And guess what? 
It doesn't bother him at all. And it shouldn't bother me and you because joy is something that we need to be reminded of. No matter what you're facing today, there is joy. Now, not only is joy inside of you, but joy is a garrison or a protection around you. Look at verse 1. Here's what he said. But it is safe to you. It's a safeguard to you. So it's like a fortress to you. So your joy that's on the inside, if you get the word picture here, it's like a safeguard to you. It's like a fortress. It's like a garrison. So you are only as secure as God is secure today. And since God is secure in who Jesus is, because Jesus is God, you and I are secure in him, and God has put a fortress around us, a garrison, a guard, if you will, and so our joy is as secure as God is secure, so we don't have to worry about our joy being intermittent. It is sealed, signed, and delivered in him. So our joy is a safeguard. So when you're going through a difficult time, when you're struggling with something today, and maybe it's in your marriage, maybe it's in your job, you don't focus on the situation, you focus on the Savior. You focus on the joy, and you remind yourself that you were surrounded by joy. Joy is a garrison, and it's a guard for you. That's what he says here. So we live in a state of gladness. Notice verse 2. The reason we live in this state of gladness and joy is because it points out false teaching. If you are not living in the grace of Jesus, if you're not experiencing the joy of Jesus, if you're not in a state of stability and a state of gladness and understanding that you're secure as God is secure, you will fall into the trap of false teaching and you'll begin to entertain things that are not according to the word of God. So Paul says your joy is what's important and it guards you against false teaching. Here's what he says. Beware. Look at the text. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. And beware of the mutilation or the false circumcision. That's what he's saying here. Beware. Uh, what, What he was saying here is that there's these pack of dogs that run around. And what they do is they prey on tender flesh. So they would run in packs and they would uh, prey on tender flesh. But Paul's using this term figuratively. So the word beware means to watch out. The word beware is a word that became very clear to me when we lived in New Mexico. When you approach your front door, you beware. Danger is coiled up in the corner. There are rattlesnakes that hide themselves in the nice rocks that we bought to kind of camouflage things, and those rattlesnakes are coiled up. So as you walk to the front door, not only are you aware of your joy, but your joy makes you aware that danger is ahead. And a rattlesnake will coil and be ready to strike at any moment. What Paul is saying here is these false teachers are coiled up and they're ready to strike at any moment. Here's the best thing you can do for yourself. Turn off some of the stuff you watch on TV. I'm talking about pastors. It's false teaching. The more that you know God's word, the more that you'll recognize false teaching. They give you a good to, feel good message, your better life. Listen, there is no better life. The only life I have is a broken life with sin. And sin has caused me to derail. So the joy that Christ puts in me when I'm broken over my sin is not a better life. It's a new life. It's a new life. So joy deposits Christ. Christ deposits joy in me. And then he says, Freeman, as you walk, beware of all these teachers that are out there to try to add something to what Jesus has already done. That's what they were. 
So the word beware, it says beware of the dogs. The dogs were Judaizers. They were false teachers. And Paul said to beware of them. They're coiled up. They're ready to strike. So when you're not walking in the joy of Christ, when you're not standing in joy, when you're not on the other side of joy, you have a temptation to be led into these false teachers and their message, and you'll take it hook, line, and sinker. But if you'll surrender to me and the joy that I have for you, joy will make you aware so that you can beware of the false teaching. Let me explain. There were two types of Judaizers. The first ones were, in Philippians chapter 1, we learned in verses 15 through 18, there were saved Judaizers, and they, Paul talked about in the first chapter, that they preach Christ, but their motive is they preach Christ out of envy and strife. So what they would do, they were saved people, Judaizers, who they, they understood everything about saving grace, but they didn't understand anything about living grace. So they would try to put people back under the law because they were saying that Jesus is not enough. You can be, it's a religious mindset. And a religious mindset is always concerned with works. And so rather than understanding what Christ's work had done for them, the saved Judaizers, they understood saving grace, but they didn't understand how to walk in joy. They didn't understand how to stand in joy. They didn't know what was on the other side of joy because they were confused because a religious mindset will always point you to works a relationship mindset will always point you to joy. Now, this is important. The second type of Judaizers were this. When he says, beware of the dogs, he's talking about these. That circumcision is necessary in order to be saved. That's big. That's huge. That's an issue of these people were not believers, and they said in order for you to become a believer in Christianity, you had to be circumcised. You had to come up under the law. You, you had to have an external mark on your body rather than an internal circumcision in your heart. So they had an external mark, and they said that made you okay with God. Now, you may want to write this down. Jesus Christ is enough. He's enough. That's Paul's whole argument. Jesus Christ is enough. It's not Jesus Christ plus an external mark that makes you okay. It's not Jesus Christ plus prayer that makes you okay. It's not Jesus Christ plus going to church that makes you okay. It's not Jesus Christ that plus baptism that makes you okay. Jesus Christ is enough. His finished work on the cross is enough to forgive us of our sin. When you and I begin to add to Jesus what Jesus has already done, we take away everything we've received in Him. We've received grace. We've received joy. We've received mercy. And these false teachers want to come in and tell you, no, but live back under the law. Or, no, wait a minute, better than that, you've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. That's not what the Scripture says. That's an external work. So Paul says these false teachers are coiled up and they're ready to strike. Can I tell you what? They're striking all over the radio, all over TV, all over the internet. False teachers, they use a lot of Jesus. They use a lot of good terminology, but they don't know the root of salvation. Therefore, there's no fruit of salvation. So the more that you know your Bible, the more you can make sure that you stay away from people who are false teachers. When you know the truth, it automatically flashes what is error out there for you. That's what Paul's saying. Beware of the dogs. Judaizers who say you got to come up under the law. Beware of evil workers. The evil workers, what they were doing is they were dropping seed 
evil seed everywhere, and they worked really hard at it. So they would start dropping seed. Evil, inherently evil people would start dropping seed. And people who weren't grounded in the truth would pick up the seed, and they would begin to digest the seed, and it would lead them off on a path that they didn't want to be on. Paul says, beware of them. Beware of the false circumcision or mutilation here. That's what Paul says. So the word mutilation means, let me be careful here, it means to butcher. That's what the the false circumcision, the word mutilation means to butcher. So these false teachers that Paul said to beware of, and the only way you can beware is if you have the antenna of joy up. When you have the antenna of joy up, it makes you aware that there are people out there trying to butcher the doctrine of grace. The doctrine of grace is what Christ has done for you, and all you need to do is rest all of your weight entirely upon Him But this doctrine of mutilization is they butcher the message of grace and they tell you this is what you have to do in order to be okay with God. Let's just put it in my vernacular. If I am preaching to you because I'm already okay with God, it's not Jesus plus how I do today in preaching that makes me okay. It's not Jesus plus witnessing that makes me okay. It's not Jesus plus serving or any of those things. It's Jesus Christ and Him alone. And Paul is saying, beware of the people who want to add to Jesus because when they add to the work of Jesus, you take away everything you've received in Him, which is a free gift of grace. I preach because I'm already okay with God. I don't go home and go, gosh, I wonder how I did, and I'm all over everything, and I say... I just don't feel very good right now because I don't think I really connected with the people. Listen, it's not my job to connect with the people. That's God's job. It's not my job to be eloquent. It's my job to get into the Word of God and let the Word of God get into me. And as I preach the Word of God, I'm already okay. I'm not preaching to be okay. And whatever you do, you should do it out of a well of already being okay with God. The only way you can be okay with God is deal with His Son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. Receive the gift. But beware, there are people that aren't okay with Jesus just being Jesus. It's got to be more. Watch this. Verse 3. For we are the true circumcision, or the circumcision. Paul is saying, wait a minute here. Christianity is not an external mark on the body. It is an internal mark. It's it's not the physical seed. It, It is the spiritual seed, the heart. So the idea was that the law could never make a person pure. So you can try to keep the law all you want, but the law will never purify you. It'll never make you pure. That's what Paul's point is. The the cleansing that we need in our heart, not an external mark, the cleansing that we need in our heart is a cleansing that can only come from Christ and His finished work. So what he's saying is we are the ones, believers in Christ, Those who are the true circumcision, we are the ones that have had our hearts circumcised. Have you had your heart circumcised? Has Jesus come in and rooted out and cut out your sinful life? See, he came to give you a new life in him. But if you harbor sin and bitterness, if you've never trusted him as your savior, then what you need is a pardoning from sin. You need a purification from sin. You don't need a ceremonial 
plea or some law to keep to make you okay. You need Jesus to root out and cut out and cut around your heart so that He can place a pure heart in you so that you can be circumcised in the heart. Because if you're circumcised in the heart, then you're truly circumcised. It's not an external thing. It's a circumcision of the heart. And we are people here at Sagemont. We just want people's hearts to be circumcised. We desire for you to come into a saving relationship with Jesus so you could truly worship Him and your heart could be circumcised and you could have all your sins forgiven. That's what he's saying here in verse 3. For we are the true, look at it, circumcision. Now watch this. Who worship God in spirit. The only way you can worship God in spirit is having a new heart. A lot of what we call worship today is not worship. It's other stuff. God calls worship, and he calls worship what worship is because it's connected to a circumcised heart. If your heart is not new, you cannot worship God today. And the word for worship here means to serve. So when your heart is circumcised and you've had the flesh of sin cut out of your heart, then you can truly worship and serve God. Because you're not serving God in order to be okay. You're serving God because you're already okay. Think about that. Look at this. Who worship God in spirit. There's no other way to worship God. But in spirit. God is spirit. And we worship Him in spirit and we worship Him in truth. Then he says, rejoice in Jesus Christ or glory in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. Have no confidence in the flesh. So what is your flesh? Your flesh is your body of sin. So when you wake up in the morning, say good morning, body of sin. Look at it. The biggest problem you face, I've said this before, but I'm telling you it's true, is not the devil. Your problem and my problem is the person we're looking at in the mirror, and it's our flesh. Think about that. So if we don't engage and worship God in spirit and in truth, then we are engaging in our flesh. And Paul says here to rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. Let me see if I can explain that to you. In high school, I had a 79 Firebird 403, headers, T-tops, light blue, and had stripes on the side, and I had a girl right by my side. Lord, help me with this one. When I put it in neutral... I could roar that thing. That engine was loud. My whole neighborhood knew when I was coming home because back then, what we added to our radio, our Kenwood system, was called a booster. It was a needle. And so when you wanted to make the music louder, you, you had a booster, and the needle would go like this. But it wasn't just the needle that made my car go in the sound. It was the engine. That engine was powerful. So when I would go and pull up to a stop sign, and I, wanted, I was arrogant and cocky, and I wanted to race the person next to me, I would put it in neutral. I would let the engine roar. But guess what? The engine had no power until I personally engaged it into drive. Listen carefully. When Jesus Christ came into your heart, He shifted the power of sin into neutral in your life. You have victory over sin. The problem is when you and I grab the handle and we say, I'm not going to worship 
I'm not going to be joyful. I'm not going to live in the fullness of the reservoir of grace that I have. I want to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. But in this moment, I choose to engage into sin. That's what confidence in the flesh is. Confidence in the flesh means there's all this pent-up power that Christ has put into neutral. But when you and I engage it, it begins to wreak havoc in marriages. It begins to wreak havoc in relationships. So Paul says that he puts no confidence in the flesh. The word confidence, circle that. The word confidence means this. It means to be persuaded by something. So what Paul is saying is, now that I'm in Christ, I don't want to be persuaded by my flesh. I don't want to be persuaded by the things that I want. I want to be persuaded by Christ and His Spirit as I worship. So you can either put confidence in the flesh or you can put confidence in Christ. Now let me tell you something about confidence. It can go either way real quick. I've been walking in the Spirit before and I've seen God do amazing things in my life and I've seen something, I've seen myself treat people like there's no way I could do that on my own. It was Christ in me that was doing that. But can I tell you this? If something sets me off or something sets you off, you can be in the Spirit one moment and the next second you can be with confidence in your flesh. I've seen it happen. I've seen confidence in the flesh wreck marriages. I've seen confidence in the flesh wreck churches. Because people are getting their own way, they're having their own way, they're not worshiping in spirit and truth, and they are persuaded by the confidence, what they can do for God, rather than confidence in Christ, what Christ has already done for them and what He can do through them. See, a religious mindset is this. A religious mindset says, I can work for God, I can do all these things in the confidence of my flesh. But a relationship concept says this, and confidence says this, I can't do anything apart from Him. And if there's going to be any work that's done in this circumcised heart, God's going to have to do it. So I've got to take the road, and when I come to the fork in the road, I've got to yield to the Spirit and not the flesh. Have you yielded to the flesh this week? You know, I'm trying to lose a little weight. I know you can't tell. Penis donuts don't help. I lose five pounds Sunday between 9.30 and noon. But by Sunday night, my flesh is real good. Give me Bluebell or 1905 from HEB, whatever it takes to satisfy my flesh. Because here's what happens. Your flesh wants you to yield to your flesh. And when you yield to your flesh, the results of yielding to your flesh is you get the results of what you want. And what we don't want always is what we really think we want. We say we want that, but you don't really want what your flesh wants. You really want to yield to the Spirit. And the Spirit will let you know that He wants for you what He wants for you and not what you want for yourself. So when Paul says, I put no confidence in the flesh, he's talking about yielding to Christ. Would you yield to Christ? today in some area of your life? Would you surrender to Him and yield to Him and put confidence in Him? That's what Paul is saying here. Notice the text. Though I say He may also, I might have confidence in the flesh. Here's what he says. If anyone, here's his confidence, if anyone has confidence in the flesh, he's saying it's me. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, verse 4, the last part, in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, 
basically Paul saying, I've got it all. If you want to put your confidence of your flesh up against my flesh, you can't even play in the same game that I can. I can beat you one-on-one. Paul's saying, hey, listen, I'm a Hebrew of all Hebrews. I come from pure stock. I come from the tribe of Benjamin. If you want to talk about someone who keeps the law, I've kept all 613 ceremonial laws. You can't play one-on-one with me. When I was a kid, my mother wanted to get rid of me during the summer. (laughs) I'm in counseling for this. So she sent me to a basketball camp at Blinn College. Guess who was doing the camp? Rudy Tomjanovich, Calvin Murphy. I'm a kid. And they said, Can we, do we have a volunteer of anybody who would like to play one-on-one with Rudy Tomjanovich? And me and my confidence in my flesh, I said, yes, I'll do it. Young man right here, the one with all the hair. Thank you very much. Come here. <laughs> so here I go. I play Rudy Tomjanovich one-on-one in front of thousands of little kids my age. I just played basketball at Pal Jim in Pasadena. We were good. Mr. Cole was my coach, and, man, he, we played ball. We were, I, I would go home and cry in the bathtub. What's wrong? Coach Cole, he's hard on me. But you know what? Because he was hard on me, he began to shape me at a young age. Sometimes God uses people that are hard on you to shape you and mold you. That's just another message. So I go play Rudy Tomjanovich in Blinn College in front of all these people, and he schools me because he's holding up the scorecard saying, you can't beat me, little kid. You can't beat me. And I didn't. And then we played pig, P-I-G, after that in front of everybody he beat me. I had confidence in my flesh, but I realized real quick that he had much better uh, flesh than I did, and he could play basketball much better than me, and he schooled me. That's what Paul is saying. If you want to put your flesh up to my flesh, then nobody can play with me. Nobody can stand in the same arena. Nobody can play the same game. Now watch, here's what happened. When Paul met Christ... He moved from confidence in his flesh to confidence in the Spirit. Let me see if I can explain it to you this way. When I would go on vacation when I was little, we only had AM, FM radio. And as we would have AM, FM radio, there were these small towns that we would get close to. And there was this tower that would catch the signal from the AM radio. And so the closer we got to the tower the more power there was, I guess, for the signal. And when we got close to the tower, then everything connected and you could catch the AM radio, you could catch the station, you could catch whatever it was. As we move closer and closer and closer, so you have the sin tower. And the more that you and I move closer and closer to the sin tower, because of sin in us, we have confidence in our flesh and the tower of power of sin begins to draw us like a magnet into unrighteous living. That's what the tower of sin does. And that's what confidence in the flesh does. Confidence in your flesh and in my flesh draws us and leads us into unrighteous living. And so then our flesh is all that we are apart from Christ. So we're drawn into that sin. We make choices to not rejoice but to sin. But then here's the same thing that happens. Once you receive Christ as your Savior, there's a God tower. And the more that you walk in joy, stand in joy, and on the other side of standing is more joy. The closer you get to the tower, the more that you and I are drawn not into the confidence of our flesh, we're drawn into the confidence of our God. And the more that we're drawn in confidence to our God, the more that we see Christ in us begin to manifest His power and His grace in our life. And Paul says, I don't want to put any confidence anymore in my flesh. Because if anybody can say, They have confidence in the flesh. 
I do. Notice the last part of what he said. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Verse 6. Let me go to the end here. Verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. All these things, Paul said, all the confidence that he had in the flesh, they caused him to not have a relationship with Christ. He profited all these things in his flesh, and he lost Christ. So what Paul says is we're going to back this train up and reverse that bad boy because once I decided not to put confidence in my flesh, in what I profit, and actually what I thought was a loss to me, I'm going to put my confidence in the fact that I've lost everything. I have no confidence in the flesh, but I have now gained Christ. And when I have lost everything that I was trying to bring to the table, all the things of righteousness, pure stock, purifying stock, from the tribe of Benjamin, all those things that I bring to the table, here's what God says, that won't save you. Nothing that we bring will save us except Jesus. Let's see if I can explain it to you like this. Some of you are trying to get your goodness to save you. You're saying, I'm a good person. I treat people well. I help people. I am good. Let me tell you something. Good people go to hell all the time. You cannot hang on to your goodness and say, I'm good. Because that's saying that my goodness is confidence in my flesh. And my goodness is going to help me when I stand before God. It's not. It's going to send you the other way. Oh, but I tithe. I give. We don't pass the offering plate here. But some, a guest asked me that the other day. I was waiting and I was waiting and I was waiting for the plate and it didn't pass. I said, we don't do it. You just pray about what God tells you to give and give it. All right? Because giving won't get you into heaven. If we pass an offering plate, you know what a lot of people do with their sinful flesh? Oh, everybody's looking. Let me drop something in. But that dropping something in is not going to get you into heaven. There are no works that you and I can do. Even reading your Bible, you say, I want to read my Bible more than I don't read my Bible. And that's really the confidence that I have. That won't get you into heaven either. Watch this. Joining this church won't get you into heaven either. You can join this church and rejoin this church and get baptized and baptize again and get baptized till you sprout fins. But if you don't get saved, you will not go to heaven. You can sprout fins in your works of baptism. But a lot of people think that they can get to heaven in their own righteousness. Paul says, hey, if anybody's righteous, if anybody's got it, if anybody can bring their game to the table, I should be able to. He said, I count everything but loss. So my own righteousness can't get me to heaven. And prayer won't get you to heaven either. I pray a lot. I pray. I really pray all the time. That still won't get you into heaven. That's a work. Let me tell you what we do with our list. If we want to say these things profit us, but we want to move to the things being a loss, here's what you do with your list. Whatever list you have today, here's what you do with your list. You tear your list up. Get rid of your list. Your list will not save you. Oh, oh, I, I'm... I'm confident that one day my good is going to outweigh my bad. Don't be confident. That's your flesh. That's confidence in your flesh. That's everything that you are apart from Christ. Let me tell you, the only scorecard that matters is this right here. I count, oh God, I count everything that I used to be, all the things I was doing as profit to make 
Jesus to be okay with me. I count all of my profit. I put it in the loss column, and I count everything that I lost, and I now count it gain because of the cause of Christ because there's a righteousness scorecard, and he is 100 points. Anything I bring to him, if it's 99.99%, I'm still lost. I'm still bringing works to him. But when I bring myself to him, and I say, Jesus, save me. Save me from my flesh. Save me from my sin. Save me from all of these works that I've been trying to do to make you okay with me. And Jesus said, Freeman, you come today with empty hands. That's the only way you can come to Christ. I can't be found in a righteousness of my own. I can only be found in a righteousness that is in him And when I trust him as my savior and he forgives me of my sin and he takes care of the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day by the grace of God, the presence of sin will be gone. I am found in a righteousness that's not my own. It's been bought with the price. And he is so gracious to give it to me as a gift. Salvation's a gift. It's a gift. Would you receive the gift? Would you say no to your list? Now listen, don't misunderstand me and don't send me an email. Listen, you know why I pray today? Not to be okay, because I'm already okay. You know why I tithe today? Not so that I can get some marks, because I've already got the mark of a circumcised heart. And what I do, and what you should do, And what we should do as a family of faith at Sagemont is surrender and yield to him and say, God, we just let you flow through us because we've been given a gold mine in you. Let me close with this one last illustration. It's called the, uh, trying to think of the mine, the Kimberley Mine in South Africa. It's a diamond mine, but years ago, these little kids were playing on this hill in South Africa. And they played there for years and generations and generations. And they played and they played and they played king of the hill. And they began to throw pebbles. And as they were throwing pebbles one day, the sun hit a pebble. And some adult noticed that the sun hit the pebble. And that really wasn't a pebble. That was a diamond. So all of a sudden, you can read it, all over the world, people came to dig on top of a hill. Let's go down under the hill. So... They dug and they dug and they had famine, they had disease, people lost their lives because they thought that they found a treasure. They had diamonds because these little boys who played king of the mountain threw a pebble and they saw the shining light of a diamond and said, we got to go get this, we got to go get this, we got to go get this. These boys that grew up with the king of the hill and the mountain, they counted the mountain as a prophet until... They lost the mountain to a deep, dark, big, wide hole filled with diamonds. We count everything as loss. We count every hill that we have climbed up, every hill of our own flesh that we have made, every monument to ourselves. We've been playing king of the hill and we count it as loss to the gain of knowing Christ and the profit of what Christ in us can do. And we count those things that used to be really important to us, like playing on top of the hill. It's now a loss because there's beautiful diamonds and there's beautiful gold and there's a beautiful reservoir that's coming up from something that you can't see. That's the grace of God in our lives. Paul says, 
Verse 7, but what things were a gain to me, I've counted as loss for Christ. Would you be willing today to empty your hands of anything that you think is going to get you into heaven and just say, God, in surrender to you today, I yield my heart. I want to profit you, and you've already paid it all.